Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a cash app profile for the show. And one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian. And all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And for my supporters, I recently introduced an exclusive tier for y'all, and it's called Mr. Jeffersonian's Ward Republic. Perks of being a supporting listener currently include one video call with me and the other Ward Republic members each month, and up to 40 minutes each call. It's a great atmosphere, and we'd love to have you there. All you need to do to become a member of the Ward Republic is start contributing today at the $4.99 per month level through the Anchor link, or if you'd rather go through Cash App, then you can round it up to $5 per month. Um, essentially, as long as it comes out to $60 per year, you're, you're going to be covered. And speaking of groups, if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. And just for basic group level access, I'm always going to keep that free. So if you can't afford to contribute, that's perfectly fine. You can still come into the group, see what we're discussing over there. We'd love to have you. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you that group invite. And if you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, today we're going to continue our study of the essays of Spencer Rowan, and this time we're going to be focusing on Hamden 4. And this Hamden letter is my personal favorite within the Hamden series, as Rowan gives a full reckoning of the nature of the Union being a League of Sovereign States, which delegated general tasks to a general government or agent of the states. Before we start on that, though, I want to read to y'all some excerpts from John Marshall at the Virginia Ratifying Convention that shows just how much of a two-faced and lying snake Marshall really was. And throughout the episode, I'm also going to discuss a recent case that made it to the Supreme Court regarding gun rights in the state of New York. So without further ado, let's go ahead and dig in. And so with these Marshall excerpts, this is him responding to arguments from George Mason regarding the anti-federalist views on a federal judiciary. And as I'm reading these excerpts, the main thing that I want y'all to take away is the state's rights tone of John Marshall and the offhanded nature of his responses to Mason regarding the concerns that were expressed by the anti-federalist camp. So it says, these, sir, are the points of federal jurisdiction to which he, and that's John Marshall again talking about George Mason, objects with a few exceptions. Let us examine each of them with a supposition that the same impartiality will be observed there as in other courts, and then see if any mischief will result from them. With respect to its cognizance in all cases arising under the Constitution and the laws of the United States, he says that the laws of the United States being paramount to the laws of the particular states, there is no case but what this will extend to. Has the government of the United States power to make laws on every subject? Does he understand it so? Can they make laws affecting the mode of transferring property or contracts or claims between citizens of the same state? 
Can they go beyond the delegated powers? If they were to make a law not warranted by any of the powers enumerated, it would be considered by the judges as an infringement of the Constitution which they are to guard. So here, Marshall is arguing for very strict construction. He's saying that the states are going to maintain control of all of these domestic matters and that it will be subject to state court, that it cannot go to a federal court or a federal judicial system. Now, we know once we get to Martin V. Hunter's Lessee, John Marshall completely flips on this because he does not like the ruling of the Rowan Court, and he appeals it to the Supreme Court that he was serving as Chief Justice of, horribly corrupt. So again, just just keep all this in mind. He was very duplicitous, very dishonest when he was trying to argue for passing or ratifying the Constitution. Once he actually has the power, unfortunately, we know full well how he decided to wield it. But another excerpt from him here, it says, The state courts will not lose the jurisdiction of the causes they now decide. They have a concurrence of jurisdiction with the federal courts in those cases in which the latter have cognizance. Now, here, we can apply that to Cohen's v. Virginia because that never should have made it past the state of Virginia, but it did. And Spencer Rowan, when we get to his Algernon Sydney essays, actually took Marshall to task on this as well. And then... Marshall goes on to say, I hope that no gentleman will think that a state will be called at the bar of the federal court. Is there no such case at present? Are there not many cases in which the legislature of Virginia is a party, and yet the state is not sued? It is not rational to suppose that the sovereign power should be dragged before a court. The intent is to enable states to recover claims of individuals residing in other states. And so here we have Fletcher v. Peck, which is the first Supreme Court case that declared a state law unconstitutional and directly led to the drafting and ratification of the 11th Amendment. So there's so many instances here. Marshall is arguing against exactly what he decided to do because he made the Constitution putty in his hands whenever he actually had the office of power. But here he's assuring the Anti-Federalists and the other delegates, maybe the undecided delegates at the ratifying convention, the general government cannot do this. The departments of the general government cannot do this. All these things remain with the states. And he goes on to ask, by the laws of which state will it be determined, said he, by the laws of the state where the contract was made. According to those laws and those only can it be decided. It is now governed by the laws of that state where the contract was made. So... Now, with this, we can talk about the Yazoo land scandal because that was something that was subject to laws in the state of Georgia when it happened, but fraudulently. And then Georgia wanted to rectify it. They actually voted out the entire legislature. And James Jackson actually went back to state office. He, he left federal office, went back to state office, and led the effort to clean up the corruption in the state government of Georgia. And the Marshall Court said no. You're going to honor that contract. We don't care how it was done. Now, interestingly enough, Marshall had a lot of connections who had purchased land to be speculators in the Yazoo landmass. So it's very interesting to see all of this because everything that he did, he directly refuted that before the Constitution was passed. He assured, he assured us that the general government would not be able to do this stuff because it was strictly within the confines of state power. And then the last excerpt I want to bring up from Marshall, he says, A law passed in 1782 which secures this. He says that many poor men may be harassed and injured by the representatives of Lord Fairfax. If he has no right, this cannot be done. If he has this right and comes to Virginia, what laws will his claims be determined by? By those of this state. 
by what tribunals will they be determined? By our state courts. And that is especially important. Y'all will recall from the first Spencer Rowan episode, when we talked about Martin V. Hunter's Lessee, Marshall and a small group of people had gone in and bought up this Fairfax land in the state of Virginia. And Marshall wanted to revive a feudal practice of collecting quit rents on the land. And when all of this made its way to the Virginia Court of Appeals, Spencer Rowan said, no, absolutely not. I'm not allowing this. Marshall took his toys and went home to the Supreme Court and said, well, I'll just appeal it to my cronies up here and I'm going to do what I want to do. So this is so horribly corrupt because, again, Marshall is such a contradiction. Marshall pre-ratification sounds like almost a, an ardent states' rights believer, but he was a Federalist. Uh, even even at this point, he was a friend of the Constitution. He had commercial interests that were not wholly similar with the other members of the aristocracy in the state of Virginia. So everybody else was kind of like the landed gentry. Marshall actually was more so on the commercial side. So just just keep all of this in mind. As we read this essay from Spencer Rowan, keep all of this in mind. And we did skip two and three, so there there's four total Hamden essays. I did not want to bore you all to, to tears with that because I know 19th century prose can be a little bit difficult sometimes. But if y'all do want to read these for yourselves, I got them from abbevilleinstitute.org. It's a wonderful website dedicated to preserving the Southern tradition. So y'all can get them there. Um, again, I wanted to read number one and number four primarily just to get the major points of contention across. But again, just keep all of this stuff that we just discussed with Marshall in mind as we now turn to see what Spencer Rowan had to say about this in Hamden 4. So Rowan says, I come now to urge my objection to the jurisdiction of the court. It goes on the ground that it is not competent to the general government to usurp rights reserved to the states, nor for its courts to adjudicate them away. It is bottomed upon the clear and broad principle that our government is a federal and not a consolidated government. I differ entirely from the Supreme Court when they say that by that tribunal alone can the decision which they have made be made, and when they further say that on the Supreme Court has the Constitution devolved that important duty. I am not able to say with certainty from the language of the Supreme Court whether they aver our government to be a national government or admit it to be a federal one. Two very respectable writers seem to be at issue upon this question, and I shall not undertake to determine the controversy absolutely between them. Such is the indistinctiveness of the language used by the court that it might not be perfectly easy to do it. On the one hand, they use the term people in a sense seemingly clear to impart the people of the United States as contradistinguished from the people of the several states from which the inference would arise that the states were not known in the establishment of the Constitution and on the other hand, they admit that the state of Maryland is a sovereign state and a member of the general government, and that the conflicting powers of the government of the Union and of its members are to be settled by the decision. And so I want to pause right here. For anybody who is still tr struggling to understand the compact theory, and I've covered that in episode one, so if you haven't heard that episode, go listen to it. But just a quick synopsis, the best way to think about the conglomeration of states that we have in the United States it's kind of like having a membership to Costco, right? You can purchase a membership to Costco, but you can also choose not to renew. So similarly, because the people of the separate states ratified the Constitution, the people of the separate states also had the right to withdraw 
And they would do that via their state government because the state government, at least in theory, is acting on behalf of the wishes of the people. So that more so matters when you start getting into legality of secession and how the South actually went about seceding from the Union in 1861, 1860. So I just want to pause there, kind of elaborate on that. For anybody struggling to understand compact theory, that is the easiest way to explain it. The states are the members of the Union, not the people in the aggregate sense, so not just an amorphous mass. But back to the essay, Spencer says, It is not easy to discern how a government whose members are sovereign states and whose powers conflict with those of such states can be a national or consolidated government. These traits indicate only a federal government. A consolidated government, on the other hand, is one which acts only on individuals and in which other states and governments are not known. And just another quick pause. I recently got into an argument with somebody about whether or not states could nullify the Biden administration mandates that are coming out from OSHA. Now, granted, a federal court actually did provide a temporary pause on that, but it is difficult for states to do this because the general government can directly touch individuals now. It was not supposed to be able to do that. Under the union of the founders, the general government could not touch you as an individual. They could touch your state and your state could touch you, but they could not touch you directly. The states were meant as a buffer. So now, though, yes, the states still could do it, but the states are going to have to be willing to really grow a spine and stand up and say, we refuse to remit these fines. We are not going to be enforcing this law. We are going to obstruct officers of the union should they try to come enforce it, so on and so forth. There's going to have to be a lot of resistance now. And that's not to say it's impossible. Is it unlikely? Maybe so. But there's some hope there. You at least have a puncher's chance with that because you have organized power. But back to the essay here, it says, The opinion of the Supreme Court seems further to incline to the side of consolidation from their considering the government as no alliance or league and from their seeming to say that a federal government must be the offspring of the state governments. On the contrary, I contend that those governments have no power whatever to make or to alter the Constitution, and that if a confederal government can be established at all, it must be by the people of the several states and by them only. Whatever may be the language of the court, their doctrines admit of no controversy. They show the government to be, in the opinion of the court, a consolidated and not a federal government. They are wholly inapplicable to a government of the latter character. Differing from the court entirely on this subject, I will beg leave to give my own view of it. The Constitution of the United States was not adopted by the people of the United States as one people. It was adopted by the several states in their highest sovereign character, that is, by the people of the said states, respectively, such people being competent, and they only competent, to alter the pre-existing governments operating in the said states. We are told by the Federalists that the Constitution was founded on the assent of America, but that this assent was given by them not as individuals composing one entire nation, but as composing the distinct states, and that the assent is that of the several states, derived from the supreme authority in each state, that of the people thereof respectively, and that therefore the establishment of the Constitution is not a national but a federal act, we are further told on the same page that its being a federal and not a national act is obvious from this that the ratification results not from a majority of the people of the Union, nor even from that of majority of the states, but that it must result from the unanimous assent of all the states that are parties to it, differing not otherwise from their ordinary assent than its being expressed not by the legislative authority, but by the people themselves, and that were the people regarded in this transaction as forming one nation, 
The will of the majority would bind the minority, but that neither a majority of votes nor of states has decided. It is again stated in the same book that the states of New Hampshire, Georgia, Rhode Island, Jersey, Delaware, South Carolina, and Maryland, being a majority of the then states, did not contain one-third of the people of the Union, so that a majority of the states were a monarchy of the people of the Union, and that if you even added New York and Connecticut to make nine the number of states necessary to the adoption, the people in them all would still be less than a majority. If to this fact you add another, namely, that while these non-adopting states might carry the Constitution by mere majorities, the non-adopting states might be unanimously against it. The portion of the people of America, who in that case might adopt the government, would be indeed extremely small. This was not, at the time, an extreme or improbable supposition. It was very reasonable to suppose that the people of the great states would be almost unanimously against a government which not only vastly extended the sphere of general legislation, but put the small states in the Senate on an entire equality with themselves. A government adopted by this fragment of people of the United States cannot be justly considered as, as a national government, but as a federal one. The character of which government is that all its members, however small, are to be regarded as sovereignties and placed upon an equal footing. In the Convention of Virginia, it was said by Mr. Madison that the people are parties to the government, but not the people as composing one great body, but as composing 13 sovereignties. That were if the act of the former, the assent of a majority would be sufficient, and that that assent being already obtained by the previous adoptions of other states, we need not now deliberate upon it. It was said in the same body by Mr. H. Lee that if this were a consolidated government, it ought to be ratified by the people as individuals and not as states, and that if Virginia, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania had ratified it, these being a majority of the people would by their adoption have made it binding on all states, which not being so, shows that it is not a consolidated government. So it is stated in the report of 1799 that the powers of the general government result from a compact to which the states are parties, and again that the states are parties to the compact, not in the other senses in which the term state is sometimes used, but in the sense of the people of the states in their highest sovereign capacity, and that in that sense they are consequently parties to the compact. Can it be said after this that the Constitution was adopted by the people of the United States as one people? Or can it be denied that it was adopted by the several states, by the people of the said states respectively, and are they not parties to the compact? The Supreme Court seems to have laid great stress upon the expression, we the people of the United States, contained in the preamble to the Constitution. This expression does not necessarily import the people of America in exclusion of those of the several states. In the last sense, it may be justly taken and thus correspond with the fact as to its adoption. But if this were not so, this declaration in the preamble would be controlled by the fact of the case. A declaration in the preamble of a deed that it was executed by three persons does not make it a deed of them all if it were executed by two of them only, and far less can it make that the deed of A, which was only executed by B. It is not here to be forgotten that the preamble is no part of the Constitution. If it were, it would carry to Congress all powers which are conducive to the general welfare which is an idea long since exploded. The opinion of the Supreme Court would seem to import, as aforesaid, that ours is not a federal government because it was not adopted by the governments of the several states. The old confederation, I admit, was adopted by the legislatures of the several states, but the validity of that adoption may well be questioned. That adoption took place in the infancy of our republic, 
and we and when we had not emancipated ourselves from the opinion which still prevails in Europe that the sovereignty of states abides in their kings or governments, that is, in this country and at this day an outrageous heresy, none but the people of a state and exclusion of its government are competent to make or reform a government of whatever nature. The governments are their deputies for limited and dinned objects. It is a principle of common sense as well as common law that a deputy cannot make a deputy. The power of changing the government was therefore not vested in the government, but remained with the people thereof. To say, therefore, that there can be no federal government unless it be adopted by the governments of the several states is to say that there can be no federal government at all. A federal government can be made, as ours was made, by the people of the several states and can be made by none other. The Supreme Court would perhaps infer that ours is a consolidated and not a federal government from the unequal representation which exists, considered in relation to the several states, in the House of Representatives, and from that government's acting, in some instances, directly upon the people. Neither of these circumstances operates that effect, either under the opinions of learned writers on that subject in general, nor under authorities particularly applicable in our own country. As to the first, Montesquieu tells us that the Lycian Republic was an association of 23 towns, unequally represented in the Common Council, that these towns contributed to the expenses of the state, according to the ratio of suffrage, and that the judges and town magistrates of the several towns were elected not by themselves but by the common council. That republic was entirely analogous to ours in the first two particulars and stronger in the last. And yet that learned author says, were I to give a model of an excellent federal republic, I should pitch upon that of Lycia. This idea of that writer is entirely approved by the authors of The Federalist, After quoting the facts just mentioned respecting the Lycian Republic and saying of the appointment of the judges and magistrates of the respective cities that it was a most delicate species of interference in their internal administration and which seemed exclusively to betray the local jurisdictions, this work entirely adopts objections founded on those circumstances and which it entirely overrules are the novel refinements of an erroneous theory. So it is said in the same book, The Federalist, that it is not essential to a confederacy that its authority should be restricted to its members and their collective capacities without reaching the individuals of whom they are composed. Again, it is said that so long as the separate organization of the members of a confederate republic be not abolished, so long as it exists for local purposes, it would still be in fact and theory an association of states or a confederacy. It is further said that our constitution, so far from implying an abolition of the state governments, makes them constituent parts of the national government by allowing them a direct representation in the Senate and leaves in their possession certain exclusive and very important portions of the sovereign power and that this corresponds in every rational import of the terms with the idea of a federal government. Again, it is said that the state governments are constituent and essential parts of the federal government and that the equal votes of the states in the Senate is at once a constitutional recognition of the portion of sovereignty remaining in the states and an instrument for preserving them. It is said in another part of the same work that each state ratifying the Constitution is considered as a sovereign body, independent of all others, and only to be bound by its own voluntary act, and that in this relation the Constitution is a federal and not a national Constitution. And again, that the states are considered as distinct and independent sovereignties by the proposed Constitution. In the same book, while it is admitted that the general government has many national traits or features and is of a mixed character, 
It is asserted to have at least as many federal as national features. In the Convention of Virginia, it was said by Mr. Madison that the government is of a mixed nature, that in some respects it is a federal and in others of a consolidated nature, and that it is shown to be federal by the equal representation in the Senate. The federal character of the government is further manifested by the provision, second section of Article I of the Constitution, that each state is to have at least one member in the House of Representatives, and this, although its population should fall below that of a congressional district, on what other principle is this than that the states are preserved and the government a federal one? The court has been pleased to say that no state is willing to allow others to control the measures of the general government. If those measures violate the rights of all the states, they will be pleased at it. But this is entirely unimportant. Each state has a several interest of its own under the compact, which is its right and duty to preserve. It results from those principles and authorities that neither by the mode of its adoption nor in consequence of its having some national features, others being purely federal, and the state governments being indispensably necessary to be kept up to sustain that of the Union, is our government to be considered a consolidated one. It is a federal government with some features of nationality. The state governments are not only kept up in it, but they are so important that they may actually alter and even abolish the present system. By the fifth article of the Constitution, the state legislatures may institute amendments to the Constitution, which, when reported to and ratified by them, became a part of the Constitution. They may thus amend the, that instrument from the word whereas, and thus they may even abolish it. Is it not absurd to say after this that this is not a federal government and that the state governments are not known to it? They can mold and modify the general government at their pleasure, and they can arrest its operations by refusing to appoint senators. The power here admitted to belong to the state legislatures to amend the Constitution is no departure from a principle I have before contended for. These amendments are, in effect, made by the people themselves of the several states. They are made by their legislatures by virtue of a specific warrant of attorney. Our general government, then, would do submission to the opinion of the Supreme Court is as much a federal government or a league as was the former Confederation. The only difference is that the powers of the government are much extended. In fact, this government may be, in some sense, considered as a continuation of the former federal government. We are told in the Federalists that, in truth, the general principles of the Constitution may be considered less as absolutely new than as an expansion of the principles contained in the Articles of Confederation, though the enlargement of the powers is so great as to give it the aspect of an entire transformation of the old government. Again, it is said that the new Constitution consists less in the addition of new powers to the government of the Union than in the invigorating of its original powers. It was also said by Mr. Madison in the Virginia Convention that the powers vested in the proposed government are not so much an augmentation of powers in the general government as a change rendered necessary for the purpose of giving efficacy to those vested in it before. If then everything conspires to show that our government is a confederal and not a consolidated one, how far can a state be bound by acts of the general government violating to its injury rights guaranteed to it by the federal compact? If the founders of our Constitution did not foresee the lashings between the respective governments, nor provide an impartial tribunal to decide them, it only affords another instance of the imperfection of the instrument, of which imperfection its authors themselves were most sensible. 
We are not without a precedent in favor of such a tribunal, for we are told by Vitell that the princes of Neufchatel established in 1406 the canton of Bern, the judge and perpetual arbitration of their disputes, and many other similar instances are there given. That great writer also tells us that among sovereigns who acknowledge no superior treaties form the only mode of adjusting their several pretensions and are sacred and inviolable, and that the faith of treaties from form the only security of the contracting parties. It is further said by him that neither of the contradicting parties has a right to interpret the pact or treaty at his pleasure. For that makes me promise to grant or give whatever you have a mind to, contrary to my intention and beyond my real agreement. In the Federalists, the supremacy of either party in such cases seems denied. It is said in substance that the ultimate redress against unconstitutional acts of the general government, sanctioned by the authority of their judiciary, there being thus an invasion of the rights of the people, may be redressed by them and people and effect a change. Again, it is said that we may safely expect that their state legislatures will be ready to sound the alarm to erect barriers against the encroachments of the national authority. It is further said in the report of 1799 that an appeal was emphatically made and not without effect in the conventions to the state governments that they would describe danger at a distance and sound the alarm to the people. Another writer entitled to consideration has also said that in case of infractions of the Constitution by the general government, the state legislatures will sound the alarm, as was done by that of Massachusetts in relation to what has been called the suability of states. In the Virginia Convention, it was said by Mr. Randolph that if Congress should attempt an usurpation of power, the influence of the state governments will stop it in the bud of hope, and again, that the states can combine to insist on amending the ambiguities in the Constitution. In the celebrated report of 1799, it is stated, as before has been said, that the authority of the Constitution is paramount over that of the governments, that in the case of an infraction of the Constitution, the states have a right to interpose and arrest the progress of the evil, and that it is, and that it is essential to the nature of compacts that when resort can be had to no tribunal superior to the authority of the parties, the parties themselves must be the rightful judges whether the compact has been violated, and that in this respect there can be no tribunal above their authority. It is further stated in the said report that if this cannot be done, there would be an end to all relief from usurped power, and that the principle on which our independence was established would be violated. It is further said that the judiciary is not in such cases a competent tribunal, for that there may be many cases of usurpation which cannot be regularly brought before it, that if one of the parties in such cases is not an impartial and competent judge, neither can its subordinate departments, and that, in truth, the usurpation may be made by the judiciary itself. It is further said that the last resort by the judiciary is in relation to the authority of the other departments of the government, and not in relation to the rights of the parties to the compact under which the judiciary is defined and that on any other hypothesis, the delegation of the judicial power would annul the authority delegating it, and its concurrence and usurpation might subvert forever that constitution which all were interested to preserve. It too, says the report of 1799, if the acts of the judiciary be raised above the authority of the sovereign parties of the, to the constitution, so made the decisions of the other departments of the general government, which are not carried before the judiciary by the forms of the constitution, this would subject the state's rights to violation by the chief executive magistrate also without appeal. There have been some judicial decisions in full accordance with these principles. 
In the Court of Appeals of Virginia, in the case of Hunter v. Fairfax, that court deemed it its duty to declare an act of Congress unconstitutional, although it had been sanctioned by the opinion of the Supreme Court of the United States. It made this decision on behalf of what it deemed the reserved rights of the state under the federal compact. In the state of Pennsylvania, in the case of Commonwealth v. Cobbett, the Supreme Court, with the learned and venerable McKean at its head, resolved in the most explicit terms that all powers not granted to the government of the United States remained with the several states, that the federal government was a league or treaty made by the individual states as one party and all the states as another, and that when two nations differ about the construction of a league or treaty between them, neither has the exclusive right to decide it, and that if one of the states should differ from the United States as to the extent of the grant made to them, there is no common umpire between them but the people, and went on to render a judgment bottomed on these principles and in opposition to the provisions of an act of Congress. The legislature of that state also, by an act instructing their senators to oppose the proposed bank law of 1811, has shown its entire accordance in these principles. The terms of that act are so emphatical and appropriate that I must beg leave to quote a part of it in Hayek Verba, namely, in the General Assembly of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, the people of the United States, by the adoption of the federal constitution, established the general government for specified purposes, reserving to themselves, respectively, the rights and authorities not delegated in that instrument. To the compact thereby created, each state acceded in its character as a state and as a party, the United States forming as to it the other party. The act of union thus entered into being to all intents and purposes a treaty between sovereign states, the general government, by this treaty, was not constituted the exclusive or final judge of the powers it was to exercise. For if it were to so judge, then its judgment and not the Constitution would be the measure of its authority. Should the general government in any of its departments violate the provisions of the Constitution, it rests with the states and with the people to apply suitable remedies. With these impressions, the legislature of Pennsylvania ever solicitous to secure an administration of the federal and state governments conformably to the true spirit of their respective constitutions feel it their duty to express their sentiments upon an important subject now before Congress, namely the continuance or establishment of a bank. From a careful review of the powers vested in the general government, they have the most positive conviction that the authority to grant charters of incorporation within the jurisdiction of any state without the consent thereof is not recognized in that instrument, either expressively or by any warrantable implication. Therefore resolved by the said House of Representatives of the said Commonwealth of Pennsylvania and General Assembly met that the senators of this state and the Senate of the United States be and they are hereby instructed and the representatives of this state and the House of Representatives of the United States be and they are hereby requested to use every exertion in their power to prevent the charter of the Bank of the United States from being renewed or any other bank from being chartered by Congress designed to have operation within the jurisdiction of any state without first having obtained the consent of the legislature of such state. Passed both houses the 11th January 1811. And how incredible would it be now if we had a state come out and just nullify the Fed? Oh my gosh, that would be wonderful. Audit the Fed and then shut it down within the state borders. And as we can see in American history, there is precedent for that because Pennsylvania instructed its delegates to refuse to charter the bank. And that, that would be an awesome thing to see. But back to the essay, it says, I have no knowledge, Mr. Editor, of what may have passed in other states on this all-important subject. 
It gives me, however, great pleasure to quote these high acts of the judicial and legislative bodies of the respectable state of Pennsylvania. That state, great in its population, in its resources, and its devotion to the cause of republicanism, ought to be heard, and its principles and its doctrines accord entirely with those of the fathers of the Constitution. Of these two judgments of the Supreme Court of that respectable state of Pennsylvania and Virginia, I, must tr- I may truly say that they passed on great deliberation and unanimously. I am justified in making this last declaration by the example of the Supreme Court. For reasons which may easily be conjectured, they have vaunted that the opinion now in question was rendered unanimously in that court. We hear it also said from another quarter, and no doubt with the same view, that some of the judges who gave it had before been accounted Republicans. If so, their works would lead me to believe that they have changed their politics, and thus changing they have undergone the common fate attending the possession of power. Few men come out from high places as pure as they went in. It is only the elect who can pass unhurt through a fiery furnace. We read of a fabled den in ancient times from which we're seeing no returning footsteps. All the victims were slain as soon as they entered into it. Our judges have met a happier fate, but if the information now alluded to be correct, it would seem that their politics have at least changed. How, after all this, Mr. Editor, in this contest between the head and one of the members of our Confederacy, in this vital contest of power, between them, can the Supreme Court assert its exclusive right to determine the controversy? It is not denied, but that the judiciary of this country is in the daily habit of far outgoing that of any other. It often puts its veto upon the acts of the immediate representatives of the people. It, in fact, assumes legislative powers by repealing laws which the legislature have enacted. This has been acquiesced in and may be right, but the present claim on the part of the judiciary is to give unlimited powers to a government only clothed by the people with those which are limited. It claims the right, in effect, to change the government, to convert a federal into a consolidated government, The Supreme Court is also pleased to say that this important right and duty has been devolved upon it by the Constitution. If there be a clause to that effect in the Constitution, I wish the Supreme Court had placed their finger upon it. I should be glad to see it set out, verbatim. When a right is claimed by one of the contracting parties to pass finally upon the rights or powers of another, we ought at least to expect to see an express provision for it. That necessity is increased when the right is claimed for a deputy or department of such contracting party. The Supreme Court is but a department of the general government. A department is not competent to do that to which the whole government is inadequate. The general government cannot decide this controversy, and much less can one of its departments. They cannot do it unless we tread underfoot the principle which forbids a party to decide his own cause. While we are told by Vattel in a passage formerly quoted, it is often proper for the head and members of a confederacy to establish an umpire or arbitrator of their deputies. He also tells us that that head is competent to decide the troubles which exist between the several members. The head is not the jurisdiction in the first case because it is interested and has it in the second because it is not. The head of the government is entirely disinterested in relation to the disputes of its members Our Constitution has gone by this principle in both aspects. It has given to the Supreme Court in express terms a right to decide controversies between two or more states. It has not given to it a jurisdiction over its own controversies with a state or states. It could not give it without violating a great principle, and we certainly cannot supply by implication that which the Convention dared not to express. 
In deriving such a power, the least that should satisfy us would be an express provision in the Constitution. If it be said that this power is carried under the general words of extending the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court to all cases arising under the Constitution, the answer is that these words may be otherwise abundantly satisfied. They do not oblige us to violate the great principle before mentioned. As to this case, the Constitution is a law sub graviori liege. That paramount law is the great principle I have just mentioned. A constitution giving by these words a jurisdiction in the case before us would equally subject the emperor of Russia to the jurisdiction of the Supreme Court. There is another principle which is also conclusive. The rank of this controversy between the head and one of the members of the Confederacy may be said to be superior to those depending between two of the members, and the lawyers well know that a specification beginning with a person of inferior grade excludes those of a superior. If in the face of these great principles this power was intended to be given, would it not have been expressly provided for in the Constitution? I have thus, Mr. Editor, stated to you some of the objections I have to the opinion of the Supreme Court. There are other points in that opinion equally objectionable. I leave them to abler hands. The objections I have stated are of overruling influence if they be well founded. I have shown or endeavored to show that the Supreme Court has erroneously decided the actual question depending before it, that it has gone far beyond that question and in an extrajudicial manner established an abstract doctrine that they have established it in terms so loose and general as to give Congress an unbounded authority and enable them to shake off the limits imposed on them by the Constitution. I have also endeavored to show that the Supreme Court has, without authority and in the teeth of great principles, created itself the exclusive judge in this controversy. I have shown that these measures may work an entire change in the Constitution and destroy entirely the state authorities. In the prosecution of this plan, it has been deemed expedient to put the state legislatures hors du combat. They might serve at least to concentrate public opinion and arrest, as they have heretofore done, the progress of federal usurpation. The people of this vast country, when their state legislatures are put aside, will be so sparse and diluted that they cannot make any effectual head against an invasion of their rights. The triumph over our liberties will be consequently easy and complete. And right there, right there, that is one of my big issues with trying to fight everything that we've seen throughout the pandemic with just the extreme, extreme point of individualist libertarianism you cannot do it as an individual because you will be crushed and swept away it's going to take organized power that's exactly what spencer is saying here the states have that repository they have that bastion they can fight on your behalf you have to pay attention to your local area participate in your local politics take it over and then use the infrastructure to fight back Nothing can arrest this calamity but a conviction of the danger being brought home to the minds of the people. That people who in this country have heretofore put down the enforcement of the sedition law, which in the eyes of the judges was entirely unexceptionable. That people who in England reversed the infamous judgment in the case of ship money and the no less infamous doctrines of Mansfield on the law of libels can reverse the judgment now in question. To that authority I appeal. I invoke no revolutionary or insurrectionary measures. I only claim that the people should understand this question. The force of public opinion will calmly rectify this evil. I repeat, however, that I have no sanguine presages of success. 
Such is the torpor of the public mind and such the temper of the present times that we can count on nothing with certainty. It would require more than the pen of Junius and all the patriotism of Hamden to rouse our people from the fatal coma which has fallen upon them. Hamden, June 22nd, 1819. And so, again... When you hear Spoonerites trot out Lysander Spooner, oh, the Constitution is either complicit with what we have or powerless to prevent it, that's not a new argument. Spencer Owen is calling this out roughly 50 years before Spooner wrote that. It's up to the people. What we saw in Virginia, they took back the state. Now, hopefully, they can maintain that momentum and put some real pressure to reverse this. I don't know that they will. I'm going to be honest. But it's up to the people, the founding generation, the second generation, the, all the early generations of America understood that. It is up to the people. Now, with that being said, when you have state governments who are truly representative of their local populace, that is government by the consent of the government. And you can use that power to fight back. Now, it is a, you know, to cede some ground to libertarians, yes, it's a dangerous game to play because you're not always going to have a philosopher king in charge. Granted, however, that's the best hope that we have because all the infrastructure is there. Legally speaking, all this stuff works. Every time nullification has been tried in America, it has worked. The next logical step for me, I do desire secession. I've been very open about that. Texas v. White was not a valid legal ruling, in my opinion. I just finished a book called Secession on Trial. The author seemed to come to the same rough conclusion because it was a throwaway line in a case that had nothing to do about secession itself. It was a case about bonds. But the next logical step should be secession. We've tried to force this thing together for almost 300 years. Now it is not working. I would dare say we are vastly more culturally different now than we were in 1860. So... Let's separate in peace. But to the extent that we're forced to stay together, just start ignoring the federal courts. And that brings me to what I was going to say about New York. There is a case right now. It is called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments against a law in New York that requires its citizens to show proper cause for why they're seeking license to, to have a firearm. Now, gun rights activists out there, and I am a gun rights person, they're going to be up in arms about this, and they're going to double down on the Second Amendment. That's how the Supreme Court is looking at it. But we have to remember, we have to remember, and Spencer Rowan is telling us here, that is not within the Supreme Court's purview. The Bill of Rights does not incorporate the state, so it does not, it does not apply to the states. And I went and looked at New York's state constitution, and there is nothing at all in there about a, guarantee, a guaranteed right to own firearms. So I hate to say this, but if the Supreme Court rules against New York, then New York needs to nullify it and say, well, we're enforcing our state law. Thanks for your opinion, but pound sand. Because at the end of the day, it's not okay to do something when your team has control of the reins of power and then get mad about it when the other team doesn't. So think about this in terms of Texas's abortion law. Okay. I, w I was against the Supreme court even hearing that because they had no jurisdiction in the case. It's the same thing with New York. You can't have it both ways. So the proper answer is don't give that much power to the black robe priesthood to, to begin with. And then you don't have to worry about whichever side has control of it because it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant as it was intended to be. So just keep that in mind. This was the last of the Hamden letters. When we resume with this, 
It's going to be reading through some of Spencer Rowan's Algernon Sydney essays. I'm still kind of going through there, seeing which ones are going to be most relevant for what we're going to be talking about. But thank you all so much again for your time. I know this one was a little bit longer, but again, when it comes to Spencer Rowan, I feel it's very important that we understand what he says in its entirety. So I I don't like chopping his stuff up, but thank you all again for your time and I'll see y'all next time. And guys, please remember if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amounts help. And thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private MeWe group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.